Well, as we continue in 1 Corinthians, I want you to open up your Bibles. If you have one, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read just the first three verses there. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Our message is called Sons of Grace from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. These are the words of God. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And amen. amen. You can be seated. Sons of Grace. Well, last week we examined uh, Acts chapter 18, which was just read. We looked at the social, political, uh, economic, and religious context of Corinth and some of the archaeological, all of those things kind of come, to, come together. And we looked at Paul's initial arrival to the city. He left Athens and went 53 miles west and arrived at Corinth. And knowing these sorts of things will help us when we read the letter and when we look at the letter and see what things he's talking about, it'll help knowing those, knowing those various things. And we also looked at the initial church planting team of Corinth, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers like Paul. They were a part of the original motley crew, shall we say. And uh, Crispus and Sosthenes, again, both great options for future children. <clears throat> <laughs> These are uh, two men, they were two synagogue leaders, and they were converted to Christ and they joined the Christian church. So when Paul came to Corinth, he came to a city that was ripe for robust gospel evangelism. Uh, that was a play, it was, it was robust, uh, it was something that he could come to and realize, hey, there's a lot of opportunity here. Uh, it was a wealthy city, remember we discussed this last week, it was a place of religious pluralism, and uninhibited cultural expression. It was the place to be. It was uh, destroyed in 146 BC. Uh, Julius Caesar rebuilt it 100 years later in 44 AD. And by the time Paul gets there, about a decade, less than a decade from that time, it was just a burgeoning place. Um, I mentioned last week as well that it was a place of luxury and promiscuity. Uh, it was very much a rehearsal of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Corinth was San Francisco, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New Orleans, and New York City all rolled into one small swamp of iniquity. So think about the hallmarks of certain places like, you know, San Francisco. Well, this was Corinth all rolled into one. It was busy and broken, totally in need of the total gospel. And by way of reminder, we learned that we, we learn from Paul's bold endeavors that the gospel can be established even when a culture is rife with unbelief. The gospel can be established, and we have to believe that. It can be established in a culture that is just rife with unbelief and wickedness and iniquity, all of those things. And the message of the gospel 
when it's faithfully announced, is the very thing that the Holy Spirit uses to deposit seeds of faith into the hearts of men. And so, as it turns out, the quickest way to a person's heart is through the ears. That's the quickest way through to a person's heart, is through the ears, which is why the cross of Christ must be declared. So having considered the background from Acts 18, now we get to work in 1 Corinthians. Now, before we dig into these first three verses, I want to mention real quick that 1 Corinthians wasn't Paul's first letter to them. Uh, we read this, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he also says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So apparently Paul and the church in Corinth had already exchanged letters at this point. They've, they've already been in communication. By the time this one was drafted and delivered, Sosthenes is with him, and they're probably writing from Ephesus. And so by that point, there's already been a communication between them. Remember that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth, the second longest time he had stayed at any place. And after he left, they must have written him, and he responded. That's one plausible scenario. I'm not sure who initiated it, but uh, chances are they, it seems to me, they wrote him, and then he wrote them back, and those letters are now lost, and it wasn't God's plan for us to have them. So 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 spills the beans here. Someone from Chloe's people informed Paul about the quarrels that were taking place within the ecclesia. So Chloe's people's mentioned there in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Somehow that got to Paul. Maybe they, she wrote a letter. Maybe they, who knows? Um, maybe Crispus was behind it. We're not entirely sure. But somehow Paul caught wind and then they engaged in communication. So... At any rate, just know that there were prior communications before this letter, which really, I think, helps us understand some of the things that he's going to say. It helps you know that he had already been in communication with them. But as always, remember, we're reading someone else's mail. So we, we're reading someone else's mail. We're only hearing one side of the conversation, which means we have to be diligent in piecing it together. And uh, this will become exceedingly important when we get to other sections of the letter. So let's look at the text here. In verse 1, we have a typical greeting. Paul, formerly Saul, remember Saul was his Jewish name. He goes into the Gentile world and he uses Paulos. That's his Greek name, his Roman name. And uh, Paul sets the tone for the entire letter. And he reminds the readers that he is an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and that he was called to such a task. Now, when the Lord Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus, Saul was converted and called all in the same moment. I remember in seminary, we had to break up into debate teams. And this team says, was Paul converted? And this team said, I had to argue, well, no, he was called. And I didn't think of it until this week. We were both wrong. Both things happened. And uh, that was part of the fun debate. And I remember vividly, I, you know, I was arguing conversion, but others were arguing called, and it dawned on me, hey, why not both, right? So he was called, he was converted in the very same moment. And so Saul was the old man, 
And Paul is representative of the new man. So even he has a death and resurrection moment. That's what all Christians experience with the power of the gospel, death and resurrection. Now, Paul's authority was clearly in dispute. We learn that later in chapter 9, verse 1. So right out of the gate, he reminds them that he's not doing any of this out of selfish motives or, as one writer said, an an obtrusive self-importance. Paul had seen the risen Christ. He had experienced and seen the risen Christ. And apostles were men who didn't just see that Christ was raised. They believed it. They announced it. They had experienced that moment of visually gazing upon Christ. We know Paul ended up being blind, at least momentarily, and presumably had eye issues the rest of his life. Uh, But they had seen the risen Christ. They believed in it. And it was deeply personal for them. They shared in Christ's work and calling. And it was everything for them. And it should be for us. They committed their lives in life and in death for the sake of this new king. The Lord Jesus Christ had personally brought Paul to salvation, and he personally called him to this great work. So apostleship isn't something that you appoint yourself to. And uh, this is when when Ron and I go to Africa, it's like everybody is apostle and a prophet, and and we're like, okay, we'll work with you, but knock it off, okay? (laughs) But apostleship isn't something you appoint yourself to. It's an office that God establishes you in, which is why that foundation is no longer for us today. I think that's Paul's argument in Ephesians 4. Those were foundational things, the prophets and the apostles, foundational for the building of the church. Um, So it was the will of God, he says. He was called by the will of God. It wasn't his own ambition, his own axe to grind. Paul was called, and and, and his own ambition has nothing to do with it. Remember, what was his ambition? I'm tracking down Christians to kill them. (laughs) or at the very least, lock them up. That was his ambition. So becoming an apostle was not on his radar, not what he was looking for until Jesus knocks him off his high horse. So he isn't just claiming the office here. Uh, He isn't just claiming the office. He's doing the work, and that's, of course, what all leaders are supposed to do. That's what elders are supposed to do as well, to do the work. Now, the word apostle literally means sent one. It mean, apostolos, it means sent one. And in the larger context, we're talking about ambassadorship. Christ is the emperor. Paul is part of the imperial convoy or envoy. And as a sent messenger, Paul's agenda is the Christ agenda, not his own. When Paul goes somewhere, he is going there for the sake of Jesus Christ. He's not going for his own little comfort here. And notice <clears throat> Sosthenes is mentioned here as our brother, and there is in in the original language a definitive article here. He is literally the brother. He is the brother of the Corinthians church, and he's Paul's brother too. So somehow Sosthenes ends up with Paul, and they're together during this composition. Uh, And so he invokes him and reminds them uh, that Paul and Sosthenes are brothers in the Lord. And remember, we saw it in Acts 18 that Sosthenes took a, a mob beating as the leader of the synagogue. And people argue if this is the same guy. I think it's obvious that it is the same guy. Perhaps he was sympathetic to Paul and Crispus because Crispus already left the synagogue for the sake of the gospel. He became a Christian. And whatever happened, it's highly likely that knowing Paul and his attitude, he ended up conversing with Sosthenes at some point, 
expressing his sorrow for him taking a beating in front of Gallio. And perhaps he just led him to Christ there on the spot. But whatever happened, they, they had to have struck up a relationship. And Sosthenes, of course, converts to Christ as a result. And belonging to God, we can see here, means surrendering one's will and joining the family of God. That's right here in the text. Belonging to God means surrendering one's will and joining the family of God. There's a reason he calls him the brother. People, they, they knew him. The church knew him, Sosthenes. Now, as sons of grace, we are united together under the banner of Jesus, our older brother. And I think it's just so neat to even realistically speculate about Sosthenes and his journey. But he, too, is a son of grace. And Paul invokes him here early on. Now, in verse 2, Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Let's deal with this, the, the ecclesia here, the church. The church consists of those who are called out of the world and called together in Christ. That Greek word ecclesia is a descriptor. It has both Jewish and Greek background. And the congregation or the assembly, which is a more literal term, are those called to assemble together, much like a Greek polis city would call a meeting. And they would call a meeting for political and military proceedings. So if, if you're in the ancient Greek world and you have known nothing about Jesus and you have a polis, you have a city, and you have ecclesias in those cities, and when they're called together, it's usually for some political-oriented meeting of sorts. Um, so for whatever reason, Jesus himself and then the apostles stole that term, or maybe they didn't steal it because it's God's term anyway, but they borrowed it and they repurposed it to describe the church. Church really isn't a great translation of that word. Um, assembly is probably the best translation of ecclesia. But in, in the kahal in the Old Testament, you have the, uh, the congregation of Israel, the assembling together. And so all of those themes kind of come here for the church. And so they were a, a congregation. And as an assembled judicial body, uh, what judgments would be rendered in these situations. Business would be discussed. Um, law would be amended, amended and considered. And if necessary, war strategy would be discussed. So it's entirely appropriate on the Lord's Day as we worship God to spend time discussing war strategy. It's very biblical. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I think that's what ch churches are supposed to do. Generally speaking, we worship God. We serve the Lord together in the liturgy, the work of the people. We, we come and we serve God in this way. And he, he first served us, as Jesus illustrates. And we work together as a congregation and an assembly to infiltrate the world with the message of the gospel. So that's what churches are supposed to be and do. And Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord. And he called us out of sin. He's called us into his assembly of saints. And we are, as a result, to apply God's law word to every area of life. Now, we are the ambassadors. And we are the warriors, those called to serve King Jesus. And Paul notes here in verse 2, that the church at Corinth, to whom he is writing, are those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called saints to be set apart from the world only happens after one is consecrated in and brought to Jesus Christ. Now, when you belong to Jesus, your vocation and your calling is now to serve the triune God in every single task, every single 
task. Mowing your lawn, making a smoothie, baking cookies, you are serving the triune God. Everything must serve the Lord Christ. And that's what this uh, notice there. Those who have been sanctified, that word sanctified, it's a participle. And it means that you have been sanctified. Past tense, done deal. You have been sanctified. It is your positional holiness. Positionally, it's a done deal. It's already yours in Christ. It's already yours. Being the imperial Lord, Jesus brings you into himself. That's the assembly of Jesus, the congregation in the church of Christ. And now you are called to serve him. You are now a saint, a holy one, brought into the army. That's, that's the conscription here. You've been brought into this assembly. And holiness means belonging to Christ Jesus as a distinctive people. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to look different. And practically, we are to become more and more like our commander. It's truly all of Christ for all of life. All of him. Every bit of him for all of life. Now, the, the jaw-dropping thing here that we see in this passage is that Paul dares to call this chaotic mess of a group a church of God. He calls them a church, notice, of God, there in verse 2. We know the mess. We've read the letter. We've seen the difficulties. They know the mess. It wasn't like Paul wrote this and all of a sudden, oh, we do have problems in our church. <laughs> they knew the mess, and Paul knew it too, but Paul still calls them a church. He still tells them that they are definitively sanctified in Christ. All churches are of God. They are His. Now, what's going on here? We don't have time to go too far into this, but what we have here is the Reformed doctrine of the visible church. We are not rationalists, which I believe our Baptist brothers and sisters tend to be when it comes to this, but we don't know the status, the regenerate status of every person. We just don't. No one possesses the glasses to see into the human heart, to see the inner workings of the Spirit. Jesus said to judge a tree by its what? fruit. He didn't say, dig it up and tear it apart, and hopefully you'll figure out what it is. You, you'll only know by the fruit. We're not rationalists, so we can't just put somebody under the gun here and say, tell us everything correctly the way we want you to say it, and then you can be baptized, and then you can be a part of the church, and then we'll make sure that you're called a Christian. That's not, we're not rationalists. We don't do that sort of thing. Jesus made it very simple. Confession of faith that Jesus is Lord, baptized in water, done. You believe and you confess certain biblical standards, and then you go from there. And that should be a fruitful endeavor. But we don't know the status, and yet we can still call ourselves a church of God. We, we don't know everybody's status to the T, but we see the outward, the visible things. We see water baptism. We see the Lord's Supper. We can hear you confess truth. Right? And we've developed, the church, church has developed over the years, confessional doctrine, the Apostles' Creed, you think of that, the, the definition of Chalcedon, the Athanasian Creed. Um, all of those things are there, and so we can hear it. But visibly, we exhibit the marks of a church. Um, peer teaching of the Word of God, right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Those tend to be the three in the reform camp. Those are the three keys. So visibly, we see those things. Now, that's why you can't go to your average mainline you know, United Methodist Church in San Francisco and say, well, they're not a church of God. Because not only do they have the Noahic flag, which is not for the Noahic covenant, 
<laughs> but you, you, we see what's going on. We see the disorder. We see the dysfunction. And we see that their confession of faith is not biblical. But there's still a level of visibly you express the church in a certain way. And yet there are still sins. There are still struggles. There are still things that happen within the assembly. So I, I'm, I would argue, and I think learning from Paul here, that uh, even when these things are faint because the people are weak, we still have a church. And this is because Jesus is Lord and Satan is not. So the covenant is entirely objective. The, the covenant is objective, and so we do what we do following God's plan, not getting you know, creative to do our own little thing. So Jesus has his people. That's what he told Paul in Acts 18. And despite the brokenness... Churches that have even the worst of hypocrites and potential wolves are still churches. You can still have that to some degree or another. And this is why the vocation and task of every person is to become what they already are in Christ Jesus. You've been made, past tense, to belong to Christ. You've been sanctified, he says. So what does he go on to tell them? Act like it then. You've been sanctified, so act like it. If you don't act like it, you're being a hypocrite. You're, you're, you're being uh, inconsistent here. At, at best, you're being inconsistent. And this is why that vocation matters. You are positionally in Christ, so abide in Him practically. Positionally, you are in Him, so abide in Him. And the work is done by degrees, by the way. God is always working in us. He's always working in us, and we are to work out that salvation. But the righteousness we love and adore is found in Christ and not in man. And this is why, I think this is partly why Paul isn't just writing to the church of God at Corinth. He writes to all Christians. And look at verse 2, the rest of it. He writes to all Christians who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, emphasizing that Jesus is their Lord as well as our Lord. And I think that's what all of this is about. Holiness is the life that one inherits, inherits from the Spirit when you confess the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ. Saying, saying Jesus is Lord is stating where your allegiance lies, right? Jesus is Lord. And, but He's not our Lord only. He's the Lord of billions of Christians. I mean, He's the Lord technically over every single person. But here, practically, though, confessionally, he is our Lord and their Lord. The infection of, of privatized Christianity and isolationism goes away when you have the audacity to believe that there are Christians in other churches and assemblies and that you can cooperate and work with them. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't agree with their position on baptism, th therefore they're the enemy. Well, that's not consistent here. The Corinthian church is not purely and totally autonomous. The same Lord who brought them near is the same Lord who brought other Christians all over the region near. Christ isn't fractionalized only to be the personal property of one distinct group, and neither should any assembly be fractionalized either. I love the meme where the guy is on the chalkboard, and he has all the you know, Jesus, the apostles, and then all the splinter groups throughout history. And he's like, and this is where we got it right. Our church, we're the only ones that got it right. And it's, okay, that's pretty funny. But I will say that's why Cross and Crown, we would confess to be Reformed and Evangelical. And I think that's an important distinction. Uh, King Jesus must be at the center of every assembly. And when he's not, other things, secondary, tertiary things become the center 
Um, but we want to be evangelical too. We want to make sure that we're not just viewing everybody who doesn't have it totally buttoned up like we do. We don't want to believe that they're just her heretical and wrong and probably going to hell. And then we never really cooperate with other Christians in other places. We have to have a kingdom view. And I think this is what 1 Corinthians is really meant to correct in part. Paul says in verse 1, he's a team player. He brings up Sosthenes. He's our brother. He's the brother. Paul is a team player. Verse 2, he calls on the church at Corinth to be the same, to be the very same. Churches must bring the totality of their witness to King Jesus and not be comfortable and content in their own personal or social standing as a Corinthian or as an American. Um, kingdom, not mere man. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. In verse 3, we have a standard blessing. Grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace aren't merely words that we say. When they are spoken to one another, they confer a meaningful blessing. We should be saying grace and peace to each other more and more. And they are gifts from God, but they are gifts distributed by God. It's the Holy Spirit, His work that conveys grace and peace to the human heart. So to be in the assembly of the saints, you need grace. But to stand firm and stand strong in the assembly, you need peace. And both Jews and Greeks would readily recognize this greeting. Think of the word grace. Grace reminds us of the chesed of God, the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. And peace reminds us of the shalom of God, the shalom of God, the reconciling peace that naturally flows out from grace. When you have grace, you have established now a fountainhead for peace. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Charles Hodge said it wonderfully. He said, Grace is favor and peace its fruits. Grace is the tree. The fruit that we pluck is peace. Both come from the Father and the Son. Both are bestowed on Christians like a crown by the Holy Spirit. And your life's security and your peace comes not from Caesar, but from God our Father and through Christ God's Son. Without the grace of God, no one can have true peace. Without the grace of God, no one can have true peace. Peace with God and peace with others only happens when grace is given and when grace is bestowed. So Paul begins this letter by telling this chaotic mess of a church that they are sons and daughters of grace. You are sons of grace. That is who you have been called to be. That is what Christ has given to you. Everything else must flow from this abundant stream of mercy which never ceases, to quote the hymn. So how shall we then live? <clears throat> well, we learn quite a bit about God from this passage, do we not? If you look at your Bibles there, He has a will. He is our Father. Uh, he extends grace through the Son. And later in verse 8, He is said to be faithful, or verse 9 rather. Um, we also see quite a bit about Jesus. Well, Jesus, he calls on apostles to give witness to him. He makes people holy. Uh, these people are called by his very own name. We are called by the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself extends grace and peace. He extends these things, but there's more. There's a lot in these three verses about us, about the people of God. The assembly is a family with brothers and sisters. 
the Christians are made holy and called to be holy. Believers are called by the name of Jesus Christ. They are recipients of grace and peace. And more about God, more about Jesus, more about us is said in the next few verses. But notice the word God is used three times in three verses. Jesus Christ is used four times, though he does say Christ Jesus in the middle of verse 2. Sometimes Paul will reverse it, Jesus Christos in, in, in Jesus Christ, but then he'll put the uh, Christos in front, Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. And also look at Father and Lord Jesus Christ rounds out verse 3. I want you to see this because the whole chapter is filled with God-centeredness and focus. Right off the bat of this letter, it's about Jesus. It's about the Father. It's the work of the Spirit. This is a triune uh, grounding for those of us who read this letter. Now, I mention this because Paul does something for the Corinthians, and it is something we all need. That is, we often need to be reminded about who God is and who we are as a result. I would say this is Sanctification and Holiness 101. We need to know who God is, and we need to know who we are as a result of that. Everything Paul will say later in the letter stems from these foundational truths. It is the will of God that matters most. It is the will of God. We want to live in the will of God. And it is the church of God. It's God's church, not ours. Christ builds his church. We don't have to get cute and fancy to try to build it ourselves. He builds it. It's his church. Uh, and it's our Lord Jesus Christ who needs to be the focus of our lives. So it is his will for us that must be first in our minds. It is his church and not anyone else's. And it's his lordship that deals with, deals with the problem of sin and disunity. No, no sin, think about the problems in Corinth, right? No sin is dislodged by being nice. That's the evangelical gospel today, right? Be nice. No sin is dislodged by being nice. I tell you, you can never be nice enough. You can never. There's always something that they will have against you. No idol is toppled by simply being kind. Rather, sins of the heart must be supplanted by the graces of the gospel. Sins of the heart must be supplanted by the graces of the gospel. And that's why we announce the Lordship of Christ. And we tell the world that. And they hear, and faith comes by hearing. The, the Spirit uses that to deposit those seeds of faith. And that's our job. That's it. In terms of regeneration, we do not have the power. Our niceties do not convert people. It's the hearing of the word. But the same principle happens to our own sanctification. We, we need the gospel grace to remind us, ah, yes, this is who Christ has made me to be. I don't need the approval of others. I don't need these other things. I have what I need in Christ. And, and what better way to deal with the ailment of sin than with the balm of the good news? Everything is centered in Paul's mind, and in our minds it should be centered on the gospel, the good news. And this is what 
This is precisely what Paul will address later in the letter. Uh, there's chaos, as I mentioned, in Corinth. Divisions, there's confusion on sexuality, there's confusion on the roles of men and women, husband, husbands and wives, there's a mistaken view of the Lord's Supper, and so on. But pastorally speaking, this is the best way to help people grow in the faith. We have to point people to the objective truths, those are the indicatives, so that they as subjects might apply these objective truths and obey them. Those are called the imperatives of Scripture. Paul will often in his letters, Ephesians is like this. The first three chapters are the indicatives. These are the truths about God. These are the truths. And then the last three verses, here's what you must do. That's, that's sanctification. Who is God? What has He made me to be? How has He made me this way? And now what do I do as a result of that? You need the objective truth so that you as a subject can apply those truths. Now, if, if you heard this for the first time, these, you're sitting here listening to this letter and the, the first three verses, you hear it for the first time, you didn't know what was exactly going on in the Corinthian church. You haven't read the rest of the letters, so to speak. If you didn't know that, you wouldn't really pick up on some of these things, these hints at the beginning. However, Paul does hint at things in the first three verses. Once we find out what was happening, I think it all starts to make sense. Think about it. Any and every division that occurs does so because we have forgotten our positional status in the Lord. There are good and godly divisions. That's why Jesus said he came not to bring peace but a sword. We have to have good and godly divisions. Some things we are, it's fine to fight over and divide over. It, it, we'll go to the hill defending the triune nature of God. But then there are divisions over things that really don't matter, ultimately. Not even secondary, tertiary things. Certain preferences about things in life. You don't have to divide over those things. But usually that type of division happens because we've forgotten our positional status in the Lord. I'll give you an example. If, if you are a people pleaser, for example, you will quickly forget that other people are not your identity. You will quickly forget. If you're not secure in who you are in Christ, you will forget that, and then other people will become your identity. And they will need to conform to you, because if they don't, you will feel insecure about it, or, and you'll be insecure around them, and certain patterns and habits will happen. But instead of pleasing the Lord, you'll be controlled by what other, others think of you. So you, you, typically, you won't be a gossip. You'll be more of a flatterer. You will, you will tell them what you think they need to hear in order to have them be pleased with you. Um, when you forget what Christ thinks of you, and which was demonstrated by what he did for you, you'll replace it with something else. Or another example, if you assume that the person next to you always have, has ulterior motives, you will develop bitterness in your heart, and this becomes rather obvious to everyone else. You're just always, this person over here, they're just, they said that, but I know that's not what they meant as if you can throw on the regenerate glasses and peer into the heart and see their motives. We'll start assuming about what other people around us are thinking, and they must mean this, or they spoke to me in a certain way, therefore I have to rack my brain to figure out what it is they were doing there. And you become immediately obsessed with it. These divisions that happen, and they happened in Corinth, and they can happen in any church, no church is exempt, they happen because of forgetting who Christ is and who he's made us to be. And the easiest way, 
By the way, when you're caught in that rut of the ulterior motive problem of others, you'll develop that bitterness. And I will say that it does become obvious to other people. And you'll try to not let it, but it does come out because everyone produces fruit. Which kind? Now, the easiest way to give yourself over to sin is to forget the treasures you have in Christ. It's the easiest way. The easiest way to let unbelief run your life is to stop believing the privileges that you have in Christ, which is all to say we need to know who we are and who Christ has made us to be. It is so easy to allow these other things to shape our identities. If we're not careful, our time and attention will begin to shift and we will develop bad habits that turn into sinful habits. Um, if you're not careful, bad intentions will invariably spill over into church conflict. If you're not careful, assumptions will be let loose and resentment will, will set in. You see, when we take our eye off the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have in His grace, we'll neglect what we're supposed to be doing. We'll forget who we're supposed to be and we'll believe things contrary to what we're supposed to believe. That's the trajectory. All of this, I'm just pulling from later in the letter. These were the issues. And what was at the root? A gospel forgetfulness. Why did, think about it, why did Paul begin this letter this way, especially after prior communication? He had already talked to them. He had already been there, built the church. He was there 18 months. They already had communication. He knew, Sosthenes knew, everybody knew that Corinth had problems in their church. Why would he begin his letter this way? Because the answer to sin in your heart and in mine will always be the grace of Christ in the gospel. And he reminds them of these things because we are prone to forget these things. Think about it this way. Pull your, pull, scale back for a second. Put yourself in the first century. Caesar claimed total lordship and demanded ultimate allegiance as a result. He claimed total lordship and demanded ultimate allegiance as a result. The Roman world accepted this truth and lived accordingly. They didn't care. They figured this is just how it's always got to be. Caesar controlled the world. He was the ultimate chief patron. Uh, he, gave, he gave citizenship. He gave peace within Rome's borders. He gave the blessing of work and agriculture and so forth. He was the one who, as the head of state, decided what constituted justice, both in the money supply and judicial proceedings and so forth. He made sure the economy could grow by expanding the road system. Remember the famous Roman roads, the transportation infrastructure necessary that increased Rome's influence. Right? As the lead military man, Caesar was the one who established peace and prosperity, so everyone believed. The citizens really believed that Caesar was the one who took care of everyone, a typical nanny state situation. And he was the one, Caesar was the one who saw to it that the arts were prol proliferate and sporting industry was good and, you know, a lot of bread and circuses as we call them. Caesar was truly emperor and lord, right? All of Caesar for all of life. That's what it, that's, that is the world that Paul lived in. Now, this was a great temptation for Christians then, just like it's a great temptation for Christians today. Many American Christians are quite comfortable living in a statist hellhole because they don't know anything different. They're just comfortable with it. And many don't care to know anything different either. The state gives, the state takes away, blessed be the name of Caesar. 
But this abhorrent theocracy we face today is the very same thing the Corinthians were up against, which is why Paul reminds the church that the community Christ has established, the assembly of God, is not one of a million other sociological groupings like art clubs and golf clubs. No, we have been brought into the life of Christ by the Spirit. Christ is the emperor, not Caesar, and certainly not Washington, D.C. Scripture is our theocratic program and not the state. You see, we are a theology-bound community whose primary aim is to reflect and portray the God whose Son has purchased our lives and commanded our total allegiance. So we are, relationally speaking, we're bound to one another by a common Lord, a common sanctification. And when we look around the room at each other, we see that each of us is here by the miraculous grace of God. None of us deserve to be here. We know, we're, we're just, we're, it's like we're just happy to be here. <laughs> You're here because of the grace of God. And so is the person next to you and in front of you and behind you. We were all dead. Christ brought us to life. We all had sinned. Christ died for us. And that's all of us individually and collectively. And people come and go as they did in Corinth and as, do, as they do in other churches. But what remains the same is our baptism, our confession, our worship, and our total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, today, this commitment really isn't much, at least in many churches, it seems like. Um, when you become a member of Cross and Crown, we ask you to commit to our membership covenant, which is simply a biblical outline of what God requires his people to do in his churches. There's nothing um, extra in there. Um, people, people will find a church because they like the music or the coffee or the light show, but then they'll leave because, well, the children's program wasn't totally up to par. And it will just get into that rift. And that's what the American church is in right now. By and large, that's what, what we have. So many of these people will church hop for years upon years. They'll never really get around to pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life because they haven't done it in their own heart. So they're not going to do it in the rest of the world. But, but commitment to Christ and his kingdom is a non-negotiable. You and I are obligated to do certain things in this assembly and avoid certain things in this assembly. And make no mistake, the Christian assembly is a body politic called together by the will of God summoned by the Holy Spirit in order to act in the world for the governorship of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring all things into subjection to his word and law. That is our purpose. And we are not here as sons of the state. We are sons of grace. We are the family of God, and we need to know who this God is, which is why we gather around the word and the sacrament. And we need to know who we are, God's people forgiven by God's Son, situated in God's congregation for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. We've been brought and bought by grace, and we have been brought into the gift of peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have given us. And we would ask and pray that you would aid us, Lord, to, to follow what your word teaches us so that we might live in obedience to you. Thank you for the letter of 1 Corinthians. Help us as we study it to be illumined by your spirit so that we may be more obedient to your will. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.